Thanks very much and good evening, everyone. Let's have, uh, please keep that open in front of you if you have your Bible open at the moment and let's have a word of prayer over this scripture. Lord Jesus, you spoke truth in the power of the Holy Spirit and yet on that day, your gracious words met with rejection. We pray now this evening for that same Holy Spirit to open our ears and soften our hearts so that we we may not reject ourselves, but accept, welcome, believe, and do what the Lord Jesus tells us. Amen. Well, it seems that everybody these days has a mission statement, don't they? I don't know if you work for an organization or you study at an organization that has a mission statement, but uh, many of them do. Um, uh, Huge uh, internet giants like Google have mission statements. Um, The people who produce honest tea have a mission statement, as I'm sure you know. If you drink it, Um, some classes at school have a mission statement. Many churches have mission statements. And even some individuals have mission statements for themselves. There's Sally's, not any Sally that I know. Mission statements are all around us. But what about Jesus? Did Jesus have a mission statement? Well, in order to find out, let's go to this evening's reading, which is part of a series that we're covering these Sunday evenings in the Gospel according to Luke. Our passage was Luke 4, chapter 14 and page 30. It'd be great to have that open in front of you, and if you need to return to it, it's page 1031 in the Church Bibles. So I'm looking in this passage for a mission statement. And I think I can find it in verses 18 and 19, where Jesus lifts from one of the old prophets, Isaiah, and chapter 61, slightly modifies what Isaiah says, but only slightly, and says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That looks to me like a mission statement, and I hope you agree. Uh, now, uh, one of the reasons why I'm quite, I feel quite sure that it's a mission statement is because of what Luke, the writer of this gospel, does with it. Two weeks ago, Margaret Gray was preaching from an earlier part of Luke's gospel, and she pointed out that Luke has slightly tweaked the order of events in order to show that Jesus comes after John the Baptist. And Luke has done the same thing here. Uh, Matthew and Mark both mention this incident in their Gospels, but they place it later. Luke brings it forward, and he gives it in more detail. He gives it prominence, 
and he gives an early place in his gospel because I think he sees here Jesus' statement of mission. This is who I am. This is what I'm all about. This is what I've come to do. But I know what you're thinking. I hope some of you are thinking, well, what kind of mission is this? Is this a mission to... Is this, is this a physical or a spiritual mission? Uh, look again at the wording here. Jesus speaks of, I think, four different groups of people. The poor, uh, the, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed... Are these the, spiritual, the, the physically poor, those who don't have much money? Are they the physically uh, the, the prisoners, those who are in jail with bars uh, around them? Are these the physically blind, those who cannot see? Are these the physically oppressed, those who are, who are living in places in countries where there's an oppressive government? Are these physical things? Or is, does Jesus mean these are, these are all spiritual things? It is, for example, the spiritually blind, those who can't see or understand God's truth. Are these the spiritual prisoners, those who are imprisoned by their own sins and are in need of forgiveness and God's mercy? Do you see the question? Say yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so um, I wonder what you think the answer is. Do I see any hands? Yeah, I see a hand at the back. That's great. What does uh, our young lady at the back think? Well, she thinks it's both. So let's ask her if she can prove it from Scripture, from, from, from this passage, from what Luke says. She thinks that Jesus' mission is both to the physical person and to the spiritual person. Let's see if she can show it to us. Well, the first thing she points out, because she's actually quite well educated, better educated than me, because she knows that in verse 18, the word for release, when it talks about to release the oppressed, she tells us, is the same word that Luke customarily uses for the word forgive, forgiveness. So that's a bit of a hint, isn't it? And then our young friend says, Well, and if you go on to the next chapter, chapter 5, you'll see a story of a man who's brought to Jesus and the man is paralyzed. It's a physical problem, it seems. But the first thing that Jesus does is to say, your sins are forgiven. That sounds kind of spiritual, doesn't it? Only later does Jesus say to him, now stand up, get up and go home. You can walk. And then our uh, friend says, and go on to the next chapter, chapter 6, where Jesus pronounces various blessings. And one of the blessings he pronounces is on the poor. Blessed are you who are poor. And that sounds straightforward, as though he's addressing the economically poor, those who are hard up. But if we compare a very similar saying in Matthew's gospel, in the more famous set of Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which obviously sounds more spiritual. 
So it seems that our young friend at the back there is dead right, that Jesus actually refuses to distinguish between the physical and the spiritual. He treats us as, as complete people, bodies and souls together. And his mission is to both. And we could show that again and again by the things that Jesus said and did. He would go around and quite often he would heal the sick of, uh, of uh, paralysis or lameness or, or, or blindness. And other times he preached about the kingdom of God and about forgiveness of sin and God's love and mercy and so on. Jesus almost deliberately jumbles the two things up and will not allow us to polarize, to separate out and sort of say, well, I'm a spiritual kind of person. Oh, I'm a more physical kind of person. Um, uh, I like to think of Jesus' mission as you know, to, 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 the, to, to the body, doing good and, uh, and healing people. Or I like to think of Jesus' mission as this. He won't allow it. He simply will not allow it. So having got that answer, brief as it is, but I think it's, it certainly persuades me, about the nature of Jesus' mission, uh, let us now look at the reaction that he got when on this day he went uh, to his hometown at Nazareth, into the, his home synagogue, the place of worship. And as the visiting preacher, he was uh, invited to read from the scripture and then to preach uh, to the assembled, uh, the, the assembled group. Uh, he picks up the scroll of, or he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and uh, he un, un, uh, uh, undoes the scroll and he finds chapter 61 and then reads out that mission statement. So what kind of reaction does he get from these people? Well, first of all, they give him the green light of excitement, of welcome. Wow, this is great. And you can see why. We've already pointed out, and uh, Jason's been emphasizing in our service so far, that Jesus came in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, who would not be impressed when somebody comes in the power of the Holy Spirit? Wow, that's something. That's exciting. Has somebody filled with the Holy Spirit? That's verse 14. But he's also coming to his own hometown of Nazareth. They know him. And Lucas told us a couple of um, uh, chapters earlier that as Jesus grew up as a child, he grew in, uh, in stature, he grew physically, he grew in the favor of, uh, 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 of men, and in the favor of God. Jesus had, um, and he grew in wisdom. So he had an all-round good development. He grew physically, intellectually, socially, and spiritually. And they would have known that. They would have known about his upbringing, his behavior, his reputation, his sincerity, his integrity. He's coming to people who know him. That surely should have excited him too, that the local boy comes home and they know what he's like and they know that he is an amazing character. And then, of course, he comes with good news. The quotation from, Luke's, uh, from uh, Isaiah chapter 53, uh, from uh, 61 rather, is... 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news. Now, who doesn't like to hear good news? Who doesn't like to hear a positive and uplifting message? And that's what Jesus brings. It's all exciting stuff. Yeah, we'd like to hear more of that. And no wonder then, in verse 20, we read that the end of reading this lesson out from, uh, from Isaiah, and Jesus um, uh, sits down, because in those days they sat down to preach, everybody's eyes were fixed on him. What's he going to say? This, yeah, they're, they're all agog. They're waiting, they were bated breaths, eyes fixed on him. What's he going to say? The expectations are running high. This is Jesus, come back home. So it begins with excitement. But then it moves to the amber light of doubt. Hang on a bit, slow down, be careful. What's going on here? And the excitement starts to turn to doubt. Jesus has read from Isaiah, and he begins his sermon. In fact, this is as far as he gets through. How do you like that for the the length of the sermon? (laughs) Two, four, six, eight words, and then we're done. Well, they don't allow him to continue. But what he does say to them is today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, can you see that's an astonishing thing for Jesus to say? He says that Isaiah prophesied centuries ago, and today, here and now, in my person, it's fulfilled. The person who Isaiah spoke spoke about all those years ago is me. Can you see that that would be quite likely to raise some eyebrows. Really? You? Who have known from knee-high? But just wait for a moment. He applies this to himself, astonishingly. But actually, when you think about it, this isn't just a one-off. Jesus does this all the time. Have you noticed? Jesus never stops talking about himself. It's amazing. Uh, he's constantly saying that the, the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in himself. He says things like, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Moses wrote of me and said. Um, and then right at the end of Luke's gospel, he, he expounds from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Time and time again, this isn't just a one-off. This isn't just, oh, we might misunderstand, might have got this wrong. Time and time again, Jesus is saying, the scriptures, the promises of scriptures, uh, of all the scriptures, are fulfilled in me. And then you've got a bit bit more self-centeredness. Read through John's gospel, and especially a series of seven astounding statements, each one beginning with the words, I am. And of course, I am was the Old Testament name, the most precious name for God himself. And he says, I am, the, uh, I, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
I mean, just think how self-centered that is. No wonder that Christians um, have often said, you know, for a person to say and do the things that Jesus said and did would have to be one of just a few things. He would have had to, to say all, these kind of, all this kind of stuff. He would have had to have been some kind of crook, you know, um, a, a confidence trickster, such as the world has never seen before or since, just telling lies. Uh, or he would have had to have been seriously mentally ill to actually believe these things and seriously deluded, delusions of grandeur, or he was telling the truth. He did come from God. He was the fulfillment of the scriptures. He did say and do all these things. And really we are shut up to the third of those alternatives when we consider his character, his honesty, and his integrity. He cannot have been a crook. He cannot have been mentally ill. He was simply too balanced, too sensible, too, too wise, too honest to have been those things. There must be truth in this. But we have to reckon with the scandal of Jesus placing himself at the center of his mission. But his townsfolk in Nazareth are having their doubts. And they're realizing what he's saying about himself. The self-centered nature of this declaration. And he's saying, who does he think he is? Do you see it in verse 22? Isn't this Joseph's son? We know him. He's just an ordinary bloke. Do you see the doubts beginning to uh, be aroused in their minds? Yes, they're impressed with what he says, but they're finding it very difficult to swallow. And Jesus evidently perceives their doubts because the doubt then turns quickly to the red light of rejection. Jesus reckons that what they're thinking is this. If you think you're so important, if you think you're so great... We've heard you've done some miracles down there in Capernaum. Now do your stuff here. Show us what you can do. Perform a few conjuring tricks here where we can see it, where we can see them. Then we might give you a bit of time. We we, We might start believing. Jesus perceives that that's what their thought process is saying. And he says, no. You'll see no miracles here at Nazareth. I'm not going to dance to that tune. I don't do miracles to show, uh, to, to show off, to impress people, to prove to people what I'm saying is true. I do miracles for other reasons. Not, not to cure your unbelief, but to help you in your belief. And belief is what they're refusing to do. There'll be no miracles at Nazareth that day, What there will be instead is a history lesson. Jesus takes them back to the days, the Old Testament days of Elijah and Elisha. These are recorded in the first and second books of the Kings. uh, They were both prophets. And Elijah, um, they were both miracle-working prophets. And Elijah was around at a time when there was a great famine. 
And uh, Jesus points out from the record, the record says that Elijah helped nobody through in that famine except for a foreign woman, a Gentile woman, a widow from Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He gave her miraculous food. And no Israelites. And he says, what about Elisha? There are many people with leprosy in Israel. Elisha healed none of them, not one of them. But he did heal Naaman, the Syrian. Again, a Gentile. And to make matters worse, uh, Sidon and uh, Syria were not only Gentile areas, non-foreign areas, non-Jewish areas, but they're traditionally enemies of Israel. And it's this above everything else, I think, that infuriates Jesus' hearers. That Jesus pointing out that God's blessing will go to undeserving outsiders, in, the, uh, in, in, in his hearers' uh, opinion, rather than to deserving insiders, as they thought themselves to be. This is a critical point, because this is all about God's grace. God gives his help and blessing and strength and grace, not to those who think they deserve it, but to those who know that they don't deserve it. Not to, think that the, not to those people who think they are members of the club and so therefore okay, but to those who feel themselves outsiders, despised and rejected in this world, who know that they are in need. It's a critical point that we all have to come to, whoever we are and whatever our need. There's an old hymn that says, that asks the question, what does God require to, for me to be fit to be uh, accepted by God? And the, and the old hymn uh, has this little line in it. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So, a question for us now. Well, a couple of questions for us. There'll be some here this evening who perhaps know that they're not yet followers of Jesus. Can I speak to you uh, just for a moment from this message and this passage? Will you come to Jesus and receive him on his terms rather than your own? It seems to me that there is a a deep-seated mythology around enshrined in a number of the world's religions that views our lives as a kind of a balance, a kind of a, a, a set of scales. And if only I can go through life doing a bit more good than bad, God is bound to accept me. And that isn't the way it works. God's message to us is, None of us is good enough for God. And we must all come to him on his terms as needy sinners. That's the terms upon which Jesus will, uh, will come to us and save us. In our need and never in our pride. In our sin and never in our supposed goodness. As Jesus will say just the next chapter, chapter 5, 
It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, not those who think they are... um, Well, he goes on to say, I didn't come, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus and his message and his mission and his salvation are not for those who think they are good enough, but for those who know that they are not good enough for God. Will you think and pray and consider accepting Jesus on that basis, on those terms? If you're willing and prepared to do that, then you are not far from the kingdom of God. But there'll be others here who, by God's grace, are followers of Jesus already. Well, can I ask you, invite you, encourage you, as I encourage myself, to fall in step with this mission of his. There are places, one place in particular, where we cannot follow Jesus, and that's to Calvary, to the cross, to die for the sins of the world. Only Jesus can do that. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But in other ways, we are called to follow Jesus and to fall in step with his mission. Uh, Towards the end of his earthly life, Jesus would say to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Will you resolve to fall in step with the mission of Jesus and with the good news that he brings for body and soul, for the kingdom of God here and the kingdom of God hereafter? Will you resolve, can we resolve, to keep the spiritual and the physical together? I'm prepared to say quite happily, on, I think on a scriptural basis, that the spiritual takes presence in the, presence in the sense that what counts most of all is not life here and now, but life eternally. If we can care for the poor and the sick here in this life, that's good and that's our calling, but, even, but any healing that we do, miraculous or otherwise, is still only temporary and we must all die Uh, until the time that Jesus comes again. Beyond that is an eternal life where there will be no sickness. So I'm prepared to give what we call the spiritual precedence in that sense. But Jesus refuses to separate the two. Um, It is grace and works. It is forgiveness and goodness, acts of kindness, generosity, and goodwill such as Jesus did wherever he went, so we should do wherever we go. And finally, if we join Jesus' mission and fall in step behind it, prepare for a mixed reception. He spoke the truth in the power of the Spirit. And though he first met with excitement, it then became doubt, and then became rejection. And maybe it will sometimes for you too. We pray for God to so pour out his spirit that many, many will come to faith in him and will join in the Christian cause and the Christian life. But sometimes uh, we'll meet with obstinacy and unbelief and rejection, even from our nearest and dearest. Don't necessarily think that you have been a failure because sometimes what you stand for, what you say, uh, and, and, and speak to others is rejected. More important than the acceptance from other people is faithfulness to God and his approval. He looks for us not to be successful, but more for us to be faithful 
um, whether we meet with success or not. So there we have Jesus' message, a message both to body and to soul, and the message that we are invited in, a mission that we are invited into and to be a part of. Let us pray uh, together as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words of grace and truth. We thank you that you stand before us as, uh, and confront us with an amazing, scandalous truth. This is all about you, not simply about doing better, not simply about trying to imitate you as merely a good example, but it's about following you and believing in you and trusting in you. Now, for those who have gladly done that, we pray that you would uh, enable us and equip us and empower us in your mission for our lives and for this church and go with us in the strength of your Holy Spirit. Amen.